This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Welcome, friend. The Finding Something Real podcast is designed especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. As someone who's been through my own ups and downs with faith, I desire to create an invitational place for people to process and address questions about God and Christianity. Finding something real is about finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Those are things I believe we all desire that Jesus Christ has the ultimate answers for. I tell people I don't just believe in Jesus because he's changed my life, although he has. I trust in him because he's radically real and there's nothing better. So if you find that all hard to believe, I get that. And if you're skeptical, hey, you've come to the right place. But I invite people to go on a journey with me. And today we're diving deeper into season six with questions curated by my co-host this month, Luca from Switzerland. The way this podcast works is a little different than other podcasts. Here, every month we try to invite a different young woman to share her story, to talk about her questions, and then we invite on Christian guests who can address her honest questions or topics. So this month, you're listening to episodes curated by my friend Luca. Last week, you may have heard Luca share about her experience as an exchange student. She talked about her background and faith questions she has. Luca wasn't able to join in today's conversation, but I'm truly grateful to her for sharing these questions. Maybe as you listen, you might relate to them as well. Today, we're going to be talking about one specific question that Luca brought up with regards to the historical nature of the stories in the Bible and the miracles in those stories. Basically, are people really expected to believe in the miraculous stories as fact? And here to share today about his own conversion from skeptic to believer is a man who is a big believer in facts and evidence. In fact, his career has been built on solving cold case crimes by finding the truth. He's going to say that everyone believes in something extra natural, and I think he makes a strong case for that assertion. As you'll hear me repeatedly say during this interview, I was just so grateful to get the chance to talk with him, hear his story, and find out why he's so passionate about a faith he didn't come to until his mid-30s. You're going to love this guest, and I'll tell you right now, you can find out more about him by going to coldcasechristianity.com. And finally, Luca, if you're listening ever, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Friend, we'll go ahead and dive into today's talk in just a moment, but first, a few words regarding stuff that helps keep us on the air. Hi, friend. This is Tara Catherine, assistant producer here of the Finding Something Real podcast. This podcast is supported by listeners like you, so please comment, subscribe, follow, like, share, all the things. And one of the biggest things you can do to help keep this podcast on the air is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your reviews. Your public feedback is a huge help to show others that they are not alone over here. So will you please do us a favor, as long as you're not driving right this minute, Will you hit pause and go write a review? It won't cost you anything but maybe 30 seconds of your time. Maybe you'll even hear your review on here in a future episode. This week's review is from KitKat Cadillac 47. She says, Love this podcast so far. The personal stories are so real and have helped me see that I am not alone in some of my thought processes and feelings. Looking forward to the next part of the series and can't wait to see what else is in store. Thank you, KitKat Cadillac 47, and thank you, listener in advance, for helping tell others about this podcast by leaving your review. 
Hi friend, this podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and Faithful Counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I am so excited about today's episode. You are listening in for season six, where we've been starting off each month with a different young woman, sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, we are featuring conversations with or for Luca from Switzerland. Luca is a former exchange student and we met last year when I was her exchange coordinator while she was in the United States. In that first episode, which we will link in the show notes, Luca shared about her agnosticism and questions she has about God. And one of her questions was about the miracles in the Bible. She said one of her religious teachers growing up left her stunned when she said the stories in the Bible were historical. Uh, She just couldn't believe it. So for Luca, she said that didn't make any sense at all. And in that first conversation, she also shared about liking true crime podcasts, which I thought was fascinating. So I told Luca I was going to reach out to several people, but at least one very specific guest. In fact, I left that in the conversation that we recorded to talk specifically about the resurrection. And I'm so humbled and grateful to say that specific guest is here today, Detective J. Warner Wallace. Jim, thank you for being here today. Yeah, glad to do it. So many of us are interested in true crime stuff. I think it's because <clears throat> there's something that's almost morbid about uh, the way we we almost see ourselves. Like, could this happen to us? You know, some, sometimes I think when you watch, watch and listen to those kinds of things, it's almost like you're listening as a cautionary tale. You know, yeah. like, like, would I have been that silly to put myself in that situation? Would I have not seen that coming? Yeah. There, or, and also there's a part of us that just privately wants to solve the crime before the podcast solves exactly. it, right? So that's the other, probably the bigger, <laughs> the bigger thing probably. Well, but. Jim, I've watched you on Dateline. How many times have you been on there? Six times? Uh, yeah. Actually, there's no, you don't get, you usually should get one or two shots, but we happen to be relatively close to Universal uh, Hollywood. Uh, our agency so so they would visit you know LAPD LA sheriffs our agency they would visit us quite a bit and because we had a full-time uh, cold case team and we take on these cases that are really um, uniquely unsolvable that um, they just liked our, our stuff and for us it was just that that was the stuff that we pridefully wanted to work the cases that nobody else could solve just because yeah. we're, that's who we are and, 
you know, just our fallen nature as prideful people. That's what so we ended up trying to pick up the ones that we thought, oh, there's no way anyone's going to solve this one. Now, there's a bunch. The thing about Dayline is you only they only show you your successes, you know. <laughs> so, so every one that's still open, you know, they're not interested in it until somebody else comes along. And you know how on a Dayline, typically what happens is you have the investigator and he's being interviewed. And then you have a bunch of interviews with old guys who failed to solve it. Okay, the first set of <laughs> investigators. Okay, well, I'm afraid that some my day is coming where I'm not going to be the the younger guy who's solving it, but the old guy who couldn't. So right. I'm sure there'll be a few of those too. <laughs> are you still doing cold cases now? Yeah, I get a chance because the DAs uh, who are still, you know, we get to retire as police officers a lot earlier than the district attorneys do. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, about 15 years earlier. Is that crazy? It's, wow. it's largely because um, our mortality rate is much higher. So. Uh, in our retirement, we die of stress-related heart uh, issues usually um, mm. at a higher pace. So they retire us earlier. And so all of my friends who are still working in the district attorney's office are are still there for a while. Wow. A lot of them were, were younger than me to begin with. So I might have another 15 years working with these guys, and they'll call me when they've got something they're really – it's not so much that they – by the time it gets to the DA's office, it's already been filed. Right. All the investigation is done. What they're asking me is how can we best communicate this to a jury? Mm. And so a lot of our work was in and uh, creating, making it visual. How do yeah. I how do I tell the story? Yes, which is why Dateline I think came back to us as often as it did. We've been on there more than anybody else, and that's not saying that much. It's just that that we we had to make these things visual because we're we're storytelling um, things that are uh, are so old that there's not even a record online of these cases. Like no one can could, no one knows anything about these cases. So you have to kind of start from zero with juries. And that's one of the reasons why I was interested in coming on your show, mm-hmm. uh, because I know you talked about Luca and 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 about you know agnosticism in, in general. I, and I was very much, I wasn't even agnostic. I was just anti. I mean, I was I was much very much committed in my secular naturalistic worldview because for the very much the same reason mm-hmm. that uh, that miracles are not the thing that you would ever consider. It changes genres. If there's a miracle in the story, it's not history. Mm-hmm. It's fiction. It's it's mythology. Um, right. That's what that would have been my my position for many many years. I don't work, walk into crime scenes and say, okay, so which demon do I think did this? You know, right. you don't look at for uh, supernatural causes in crime scenes. So I was just a very committed naturalist. Yeah, and I think if Luca was here, she would say the same thing. You know, when we talked recently, mm-hmm. she's just like, sure. you know, this is. She didn't say they're fairy tales, but this isn't what I believe. In fact, after we were done recording, I asked her, I said, I want to know if this is your worldview. Mm -hmm. You came from nothing. It means basically, you know, existentially anyway, nothing. And you're going to nothing. And she was like, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. And, you know, it's really interesting about this. I'm a cumulative case guy. So for me, there's no one reason why I believe Christianity is true. It's it's the death by a thousand paper cuts. It's it's that it's that everything ends up being best explained by a theistic worldview. And of those theistic worldviews, Christianity is the, the by far the strongest case for theism. That's my view. Now I will say to people who are relatively, if they are truly not, look, sometimes people will say they're agnostic, and they're not really agnostic. They just don't believe it. And they don't want to say it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. That was me. I was more than willing to debate with you. I was more than willing to say I didn't believe this nonsense. 
And the yeah. Christians I knew on, uh, who were at work weren't very good at defending themselves anyway. So it was not much, it wasn't very difficult. Okay. Well, okay. I want to, I want to slow you down here real quick because I, I want to know more about your yeah. ministry real quick before I dive yeah. into your story. So while because... I drink my monster, okay. I'm like, <laughs> drink a monster to stay awake with you because I'm old. <laughs> So well, listen, I know you're busy. I know that you've got a super busy schedule where you're talking to lots of people. I really yes. appreciate you coming on here. Um, but you have an incredible ministry. I, In fact, I have several of your books right here. I just wanted to show you that it's a thing for me. Very, and very my cool. kids have very read them cool. too. Yeah, Good. I even have Good. Forensic Faith. Um, they're Good. all that's, excellent. That's my, one of my favorite books. Really? Is Forensic <laughs> yeah, that's where I think the real battle is. That's where I think the battle is for Luca. <laughs> Is okay. that Luca thinks that that she has to check something important yeah. before at the door before she can she can entertain this? Yeah. As though, hey, you people who believe this blindly, I, I can't I can't go there. Yeah. Well, and tell me that was my view too. Tell me your story, and then tell me what you're doing now, because I think obviously I'm going to have an introduction in this. People are going to hear more about it from my point of view, but I want to hear from you. You were an atheist. You were right. skeptical of all this. You were a mm -hmm. homicide detective. Um, I Fun fact, um, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a detective. I was volunteering with the police department. Then I worked for the prosecutor's office. I know a little bit of your world. I know what you're talking about, like high stress, just the facts, right. you know. Um, tell me about your journey in faith and where you're at now, Jim. Well, I think that for me, a lot of it was just that I didn't have any... Um, like Lucas probably having a conversation with you years before I would have entertained a, a similar conversation with anybody in my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested. It just, it just, just was not in my orbit. No, no Christians growing up. No one in my family is a Christian. Church is not a thing for me. Never invited to church. Lived my entire life without going to church. And a couple of weddings in my family. Um, and it was only because my family married somebody who didn't know what church was, like a cousin cousin's wedding i remember one cousin's wedding in particular while i was in church uh probably you know, an evangelical church um so for the most part this was not my my orbit uh my wife was a little bit different her mom was uh a catholic she was raised and neither one of us owned a bible neither one of us we could have considered ourselves christians but at least she had some understanding and as we started to raise kids together and we had been together about 10 years um she started asking before we even had kids and now by the time we had the kids, we're 18 years into our relationship. And she started thinking, well, should we start taking our kids? You know, you kind of when you when you're as young parent, if it, you kind of start thinking, well, do I need to kind of build an infrastructure to help me parent well? Right. And that might include, you know, what schools should I put, send my kids to? And what kinds of extracurricular activities? What sports? What that, you know, all these things that are character development things. And one of those, I think, Susie realized, well, hey, should we bring our kids up in a worldview? Um, that kind of helped build their moral infrastructure. And I'm like, no, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't raised fine. that way. Yeah. And I'm looking how great I am. So, I mean, I thought, you know, there's, but I was willing to go as a, as a non-believer just because I love Susie. And if mm -hmm. she wants to go, I'll, I'll be happy to go with her and, and shut up and sit next to her. And I think my dad would have taken that same view. He, he divorced my mom when I was very young, but he remarried when I was also very young. And his second wife became a Mormon pretty quick. And and he didn't he isn't very much committed atheist and he didn't think that Mormonism was true but he sh he sure didn't stop it mm. because he felt like it was if it's good for her it's fine fine for me what do I care if yeah. it's a he considered it a useful delusion and that was kind of my position too if it's useful to you great mm -hmm. I'll go but don't ask me to but this first church we walked into we were invited by somebody I worked with 
one of the few people I worked with who actually had a kind of evangelistic, um, well, we had a relationship, so I guess that's why he would even ask me to come to church with him. But I said no for three years, So I mean, <laughs> even though he asked. But then when Susie got interested, I said, well, you know, he's been asking if you want to go to his church. I don't care. So we went, mm-hmm. and I remember sitting there, and the pastor was very informal. And he just pitched Jesus in a way that he knows that he's very much, you know, knows that there's going to be atheists in the group. And he pitched him in a way I could catch him. He pitched him as a smart guy. And I thought, well, okay, if he's smart, let me see what's so smart about Jesus. And that's when I bought a Bible. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect to, to see the Gospels. I expected to find proverbial wisdom statements like um, Solomon writing Proverbs mm-hmm. or um, Baha'u'llah writing proverbial statements or Buddha. Yeah. Uh, I didn't expect that this is going to be in a historical narrative or an allegedly historical narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's well, what caught my eye. And that's what, that's what started the whole investigation for me. I want to stop you right there because you actually also had some very, I mean, I've listened to you talk before about how the people that you knew who were religious, some of them were nutcases. And then quite a few of them were people that you were arresting, right? I mean, they were people that yeah. were saying things like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. And I'm, you know, killing my wife or whatever, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I've, I've got guys that when, after we put them, we're, we're in trial. And one of them uh, during the break, um, were in trial for a murder of his wife. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he later confessed to it. But he, at this point, he still wasn't ready to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And they were in trial, and he's sitting at the desk at the table next to me, and the attorneys have to go up for a sidebar with the judge. So while they're there at the sidebar, it's just me, because my DA has got the sidebar, and his attorney's at the sidebar also, and it's him and the bailiff. And he leans over, he says, Jim, Jim. I said, I said what? He says, I just want you to know I'm I'm doing a Bible study. I let, I'm leading a Bible study in county jail. There, <laughs> we, keep, we keep them in county jail when while they're being tried, and then they go to state prison afterwards. And I thought to myself, this is just, it's like, does it get any better than this? So so I get it. Um, as a matter of fact, I think part of the problem has been that the church with the big C in the modern era, the doorway into the club is probably the wrong doorway. It's the doorway of experience. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you here? Because you were probably raised in the church or you've had some experience that you think is um, holy or is divinely appointed or it's an evidence for you that God exists. Okay. That I never trusted mm-hmm. my own experiences and I don't trust anybody else's experiences either. <laughs> so that wasn't going to work for me. But if that's right. your way in, I'll give you, give you a really firm example of this. Okay. Uh, and I've been using this the last couple of days because it just happened to about three weeks ago. One of the players for the Buffalo Bills was critically injured on a Monday night football game. Right. He was hit in the chest. He had heart cardiac arrest and they had to bring him back to life on the field once and then once in the hospital and they almost died. Young guy. And after he came back uh, the next week, the Bills played and the very first play at kickoff, the Bills received the ball and ran it back for a touchdown. And as they ran it back for a touchdown, the the, um, the quarterback of the Bills was running along the sideline because he couldn't believe what he just saw. Mm-hmm. They had been praying for DeMar uh, the entire week after his injury. And he finally got better and better. And then he says, yes, well, I'm good to go, but go out and play. And so they're playing this game for him. And the very first play is without even, you know, touch the ball, touchdown. And afterwards, he said in a press conference that he was running up inside down the sidelines telling everybody, there is a God. See, there is a God. You see, there's a God. And at the press conference, someone informed him and he said it. He said, yeah, I found out later 
that it had been three years and three months since we had run back a kickoff for a touchdown. And of course, what's the number that DeMar wears? Three. <laughs> now, okay. If this is what we're counting as evidence that God exists, I mean, you're laughing at it. I'm not laughing at it. I'm mm -hmm. concerned about it. Mm -hmm. because I think this is the way a lot of us make decisions about whether or not God exists. And that is not the way you'd make a decision about anything else. It's very superstitious. Right. And but I also think it's that's very our, personal, right? It's very personal. It's mm -hmm. I'm interpreting these set of facts in a way that's not objectively grounded. It's grounded in me as the subject. And I only right. would have this experience because of what I think I know about my own life. Right. And my own experience. And there's the problem. That's why I bet you when you talk to agnostic folks, that, that would have been me. I would have said, okay, that's why I'm not part of this stupid club. Right, exactly. And then you have this objective experience of seeing people who say that they love God and have had these woo-woo or, you know, and I don't yeah. want to downplay that. I know lots of no. people who've had, in fact, yes. me, I've had wonderful personal experiences with oh, the Okay, Lord. let me just say one thing yeah. about before you go any further. I think that personal experience is, a, so there's only two forms of evidence. There's direct evidence and indirect evidence. Direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. Everything else in a criminal case is indirect. Mm -hmm. It's also called circumstantial, which gets right. a bad name. But the idea with indirect, that's that's DNA. That's that's blood spatter evidence. That's fingerprints. Those are not direct. That's not direct evidence. Only eyewitness testimony is direct evidence. Well, you have an experience. You become the eyewitness that experienced this. It's a form of direct evidence. So I get that we would rely on direct evidence. But here's what I've discovered. You can't trust witnesses, even the biblical witnesses. You've got to test witnesses. Yeah. If you test them and they pass the test, then you trust them. Okay. The problem I have is we are not critical of our own experiences. Yeah. And that's why we believe almost anything. Yeah. So so tell me more about that because um, you know, I was listening to a talk you gave to King's Academy. I think that's where it was um yeah. last night. One of our um girls, my agnostic daughter. Uh, from Denmark. She's like, how can you trust any of this stuff? You know, I mean, she didn't ask it quite like that, but we were talking about the Bible and the reliability. You had obvious barriers of, you know, your personal experience, seeing people who were just part of a club you didn't want to be part of. You go to church with your wife. You're like, oh, this guy said something about Jesus. Is it actually true? What do you think prompted you to actually look into it for yourself? Because so often I talk with young women on here who are like, it's not relevant to them. You know, in fact, I mean, I don't know, Luca's not here today and, and I just love her and I don't know why she's not here exactly. She has a different thing going on. But for her right now, she's already made up her mind. Like, I'm not even going to look into that. Yeah. What do you think at that point in your life, you were like, it's not just something that I'm going to, you know, support my wife in, but I'm actually going to look into this despite, you know, a lot of weird stuff that I can see. Well, a couple of things. Number one, um, I don't think anything, no one comes to the cross unless they're called. Mm. I mean, I hate to say that, but because I mean, I think sometimes as an atheist, that sounds like, oh, really? So in other words, here we are again with your <laughs> thinking that you've been called by God to believe. No, no, no I'm not saying that. I want to test it. But what I am saying is I'm not stupid enough to think that, you know, if there, just, just go with me for a second. Imagine that this thing we're looking at and examining is actually true. If there is a God, would you think that you're more powerful than he is? Mm -hmm. At the very least, you would come to believe that probably everything is within his control. And I do believe that. But it, it, God reaches us in different ways. If I'm yeah. in a different country, he's going to use different language, for example, to reach me. And the language I spoke was evidence. Mm 
Okay. So that's how I was attracted to the case. I was attracted to the case because as I read through the gospels to get the wisdom statements of Jesus, the red letters, what's so smart about Jesus. The first thing I noticed was that um, they don't line up. They are, they have variations between the accounts, just different ways. The same scene is described. And by the way, I've seen people, this is exactly what I expect to find when I've got different eyewitnesses writing or different sources, eyewitness sources describing the same event. They never match. They never match. And when they do match, you are usually suspicious. <laughs> the only thing the detectives ever ask when we get called out to a crime scene is to have the patrol officers who are on scene right now, have them separate the eyewitnesses. Because if you don't want to separate those eyewitnesses, we're going to get the same statement five times because they're going to talk to each other. Now we want, if we don't let them talk to each other, they'll trust me. There'll be times when you're wondering if they saw the same event, right. but we get to puzzle back and get the rich layers of what appears to be contradictory, but in the end, all puzzles together quite nicely. And that's the rich kind of cumulative view of what really happened because everyone focuses on something different. Everyone brings their own experiences to every scene, their own um, desires, their own likes and dislikes. If they're interested in clothing more than the other guy, they're probably going to have a better idea of what the clothing was. The other person gets to get the clothing wrong, mm -hmm. but that's not their thing. So I'm looking to figure out not, not only what are you saying to me, but what are your interests? Like, mm -hmm. where can I trust you in these areas? So that's part of what I was doing with the Gospels. When I saw those differences between the accounts, I was like, oh, this is worth examining. Mm -hmm. Had there not been differences between the accounts, I would have said, okay, this is another piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. So I, that was the thing that first provoked me. But here's what I will say to you. Here's the thing about agnosticism. If it's true agnosticism, it means that you don't think there's enough evidence to land in a position. And most of the time, what I'm seeing with agnosticism is the people who are agnostic are actually hold as their baseline position naturalism of some form or another. Mm -hmm. In other words, they hold as their baseline position that physics and chemistry and space, time, and matter can explain everything. Right. And until I have sufficient evidence to warrant the existence of a deity, I'm just going to hold. But all of us hold to something. And we could say, well, I, I mean, I don't think people who are agnostic about God are necessarily as agnostic about naturalism. Doesn't sound like Luca is. I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I actually held to naturalism. Now, here's what's interesting. If you really look at the big attributes of the universe, and I did this in a book called God's Crime Scene, it turns out we don't have good evidence to explain how the universe originated, why it appears to be fine-tuned, how a life originated in the universe, and why it appears to be designed. These are uncontroversial, by the way. Even right. atheists, uh, philosophers, atheists, biologists, atheists, astrophysics, they all say that there's an appearance of design, an appearance of fine-tuning. They just don't think there's a designer or a fine-tuner. But that, but the idea that that the the universe appears fine-tuned, or that that biology appears designed, is relatively uh, accepted by everyone. It's non-controversial. Mm -hmm. they, they have to explain consciousness and free agency and why we think there are some objective transcendent moral values, like you shouldn't torture babies for fun, and why it is that there are things we consider evil. There's apparently some standard we would all say is a standard of righteousness by which we compare something and call it evil. So these are the features of the universe. And if you ask people who are in the sciences, well, how did this start? Why does it appear this way? Let me tell you what they'll say. Just because we don't have an answer now does not mean that science won't someday have it. Hmm. Really? So what you're saying is I'm willing to hold on to naturalistic claims about the eight most important features of the universe, even though you have insufficient evidence. Why aren't you equally agnostic about those claims?
So I think in the end, we all do this. I tell jurors all the time in jury trials, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. And there's a huge difference. You'll, you'll have more than enough information to render a verdict. But you might not, when the, I don't know, unless he was going to confess to me, I can't tell you why he did it, exactly how he did it. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm, just, I'm not going to know, but that's okay. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. And then you can make it a decision. Decision. Well, this is true for everyone who holds any worldview, whether it's naturalism, whether it's Christian theism, whatever it may be. We think we have enough information to hold on to this, even though we have insufficient. We don't know everything. Mm-hmm. My only question to you is, do you realize that it turns out over here on this side of Christian theism, there's a lot less that you don't know? Than there is on the on the eight. So I'll, I'm just suggesting if 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 someone says they're agnostic, great, been there. <laughs> Are you as equally agnostic about the, the your default view? Because you have a default view that you seem to be certain of, hmm. yet you don't even have near as much evidence for that as you could have over here. So why aren't you equally agnostic about that one? Because it works, right? Well, and a lot of this is you know sometimes I can tell you that it's not always. Yeah, it does work. Well, what does that word mean? Work. But how does it work? Mm-hmm. Now you could say, well, if we're looking at if what works is what accurately describes the world the way it really is, that's different than well, right. this is convenient for me, right. or this has worked for me over the last ten. years. By the way, whatever works for you in your twenties or your thirties won't necessarily work for you in your sixties. <laughs> okay, that's right. <laughs> just know things start to shift. Okay, so so I think that we're looking not just for I. I and this is the next book I'm writing right now is really talking about this issue of what it is about our human nature that really demonstrates that Christianity is true because there are so many aspects of who we are as humans that has been explained by Christianity for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, and one of this is our search for identity, our, our search. And, and, and every, if you look back at your life, I'll bet you'll, you'll find that every time you had a crisis moment and struggled, it was because you underwent some relatively dramatic change in identity. Mm. You know, either you now your kids are grown and suddenly you're no longer a parent the way you were, or now you retire and you're no longer a detective, or whatever it may be, you're divorced now, you're no longer a spouse. Once your identity takes huge shifts, it's troubling for us because we are such we're such identity driven people, species. Yeah. yeah. So it turns out if you will place your identity in the one thing that doesn't change, you won't experience this. Yeah. And the people who have the best mental health through studies are people who have the most transcendent view of their own identity. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the ways you can form identity, the way that we form as Christians ought to be, because you can, I always say you can form an inside out, outside in or downside up and downside up identity is when you put your identity in God and that's an unchanging transcendent. Wow. Will help you to have better mental health. When does that book come out, Jim? That's, that's, uh, it's due in June and probably come out next year. <laughs> when it comes out, I want to have you back on here. <laughs> well, and this is a lot of what looked at, I always say that the case for Christianity is so robust and it's cumulative. So we say, okay, well, there's evidence I could look at in just the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And so I get Lucas looking at that and saying, well, there's, 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 there are supernatural elements there. Well, yeah, trust me, everyone believes in something that's extra natural. Everyone does. So tell me a little bit about the evidence, Jim, because that's, especially when it comes to the resurrection. I know where you're going with this, and I want to hear it because I think Luca would like to hear it too. How can she believe in that? So what happens is everything is about trying to figure out what is the best explanation for the evidence we would agree exists. That's it. 
every crime scene, every death scene, every scene of anything is us trying to figure out of all the alternative ways to account for this, which explanation best fits the evidence. And I think when it comes to the resurrection, there are some pieces of evidence that I think are clear. Now, what I've seen is that the attack on, on the resurrection uh, either comes by, I don't like your explanation, I've got a better explanation, or, and all those fail, by the way, I, I, I went through in my own mind, I think six or seven atheist explanations that I had held in one form or another my entire life, and to see if they actually work compared to the Christian explanation for the fact there's a guy named Jesus who lived in the first century who people said rose from the grave. I didn't believe that, mm -hmm. but I know they said it. Yeah. And I had you know reason to believe that he probably did live and he probably did die on a cross. Right. These are not, you know, now what's happened is I've seen people now because all the alternative explanations don't work because, you know, the explanations are basically, well, either they lied about it, they imagined it when it really didn't happen. They thought he was dead when he was still alive. You know, mm -hmm. that imposter played a role or maybe they never claimed this at all, but it was just added to the text over the years. I mean, I looked right. at every single possible explanation for the bare minimal facts, including the Christian one. And every explanation has got strengths and weaknesses, including the Christian one. It's got weaknesses. And I just looked and said, okay, which one of these has got the most strengths and the least weaknesses? And, and what I've seen is that, that, by the way, if there are six atheist explanations, you know why there are six atheist explanations classically for the resurrection? Because none of them work. Hmm. And if you hold to, to explanation one, it's because you don't like two, three, four, five, and six. And then someone holds to five because they don't like one, two, three, five, and, and six. They hold to four. So my point is, is that the reason why you have so many alternative explanations, because they don't work. Hmm. And when I, I wrote in one of the chapters of the, the first book, just here's why I think each one of these. Now, here's where the Christian explanation doesn't work. And the Christian explanation is just that it happened as it's recorded. Mm -hmm. But for me, it didn't work because it requires a miracle, a resurrection. Right. So again, it's going to come back to that very thing that Luca is troubled by, which is the existence of something extra natural. And when I, let's be clear about what we're talking about. Something that cannot be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. The natural realm is space, time, and matter. The things that we recognize as forces in the natural realm are forces of, of you know, chemical forces and physical forces that act on space, time, and matter. So if it's something outside of that, you have an extra natural cause. Right. And the problem I had is that if you look at the evidence in the universe is that we, I mean, everyone I know as an atheist, I had extra, I believed that there was an extra natural first cause of the universe that was outside of space, time, and matter. Why? Well, because the scientific evidence, this is why this is the standard cosmological model amongst atheist physicists, that, that something outside of space, time, and matter caused the entire universe, all space, time, and matter to come into existence. So I knew I already kind of believed there was something outside. Now, look, the only question is, is that cause personal or impersonal? And I think there are many good lines of reasoning to suggest that they, it's a personal cause. Mm. And if that's the case, then of all the miracle, miracles described in the scriptures, the, the biggest and most dramatic and hardest one to swallow is in Genesis 1. It's not on the pages of the New Testament. Yeah. If I can create everything from nothing, Genesis 1, then I'm guessing I could walk on. These are what I call small potato first uh, you know, miracles in the New Testament. They don't really amount to much if I'm the kind of being that could create everything from nothing. Yeah, but, mm. but let me just say that one more thing about this. It strikes me that most of us already believe in something non-physical. You believe you have a mind. 
Yet science can't account for your, it can account for your brain, mm-hmm. but consistent atheist philosophers like Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist, denies that you have a mind. And he also has to surrender free will, though, because if all you have is a physical brain, there are no freedoms. Everything is a cause and effect kind of realm in the physical brain. So you have neurons that fire that cause what seem to be free thoughts, but they're not. They're entirely dependent upon a physical process that precedes them. Hmm. So you have to get rid of free agency also. But I, I suspect that most agnostics think they have freedom that they are experiencing in their mental thoughts. Yet under atheism, you don't have, you only have brain states. You have, you know, physical realities. You don't have non-physical mental thoughts. You just have what appear to be thoughts, but they are actually something you're experiencing physically. So this is the problem is that we already believe. Do you realize that here in California, if you um, sell a house in which somebody was murdered, you have to um, um, disclose that. Even if someone dies in a house, you have to disclose they died. And you know why that's the case? Because people don't want to buy houses they think are might be haunted. Right. More people believe in ghosts and and they'll be freaked out. I mean, they'll watch paranormal activity, right? right? And then they'll go home that night and be really uncomfortable because right. they think this could be true. Yet right. they would deny any kind of supernatural activity well, as described in scripture. Just from talking with girls on this program, you know, I think that I mean, I can think of several people in my life who think, oh, yeah, there's something out there. There's a spiritual world, but they're unwilling or very reluctant to look into scripture, going back to what we were just talking about, which is uh, I don't want to be part of that club and I don't want to be I don't want to even look into it. And the Bible's just a bunch of stories. Um but I like what you said about no one's going to come to it without being drawn, because I think that what you said, too, like I was watching and we'll link it in the show notes, the video of you talking to those students. And I've seen some of your other presentations, Jim. And by the way, before I went to cross-examine Instructors Academy uh, this summer, a friend of mine, Janelle, she's awesome. Another Janelle. Um, she's like, oh, I've seen Jim present. He's the most amazing presenter. And I felt that way when I was watching you talk about person of interest, another book that you've done, which is excellent, one that I've sent overseas to one of my girls, at least one of them. Um, it was just so well done. You have dived deep into this and used the exact same skills that you learned as a homicide detective to really investigate this. And it was really interesting talking to um, one of the girls that I asked to be on here today, Lou from Italy, because she actually is the one that I sent the book to. And she goes, you know, it's really interesting that you feel, um, and I don't know exactly how she said this. So Lou, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I mischaracterize you. But she's like, you know, as a Catholic, growing up in a Catholic nation in Italy, she's like, we just talk about faith, you know, our personal experience, but you're actually looking for evidence. And I said, well, that matters to me. I don't want to believe something that's false. You know, if you read your Bible, it mattered to Jesus. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. 
So we use Patreon, and if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Jesus often, he would say it all the time. If you don't believe what I'm saying to you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you. Mm-hmm. He's appealing to indirect evidence, miracles, to attest to that he is who he said he was. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist had doubts and sent his disciples to Jesus and they said, Jesus, John sent us, he wants to know, are you the one? I think Jesus could easily have scolded them. He probably should have. After all, John was his cousin who knew him from the very early age, leapt in his mother's womb when they were introduced originally, baptized Jesus, sent his own disciples to Jesus, telling them that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he's locked up. He's having difficulty. I get it. He's asking the same question that all of us ask. Jesus, how could you be who you say you are, yet this is the way the world is? Right. I'm stuck in jail. I'm suffering. There's suffering in the world. How can this be so if you are who you say? That's a different question. That's a good question. That's one of the but, questions Luca asked, actually. Yeah, and exactly. And what Jesus did was at least to demonstrate his deity to, to, to John is he didn't say, well, John, you should know better. You're my cousin. Mm-hmm. He didn't pontificate about some theological principle. He simply did miracles in front of John's disciples and said, go tell John what you just saw. That's an evidentialist. Mm-hmm. So because Jesus is an evidentialist, I'm an evidentialist. When Thomas wanted to see the wounds, Jesus showed him the wounds. And afterwards, he said, Thomas, blessed are those who don't need to see this, but will still believe. Why keep reading? Why? Because you're going to testify to it. Yeah. You'll be my witness. Oh, direct evidence again. This is an evidentialist through and through. Yeah. That's why I'm an evidentialist about my faith, because Jesus was. Now, there's lots of us who have a very kind of tepid experiential version of Christianity that we are, we are living through. We've never really read the scripture. We've never really, we're not that familiar with how, what Jesus approaches, what, you know, what, what, how did they, the disciples were all eyewitnesses. And in the book of Acts, when Judas is taken out of the group, they replace him with another eyewitness. Matthias was picked because Peter is looking for somebody, Acts 1, who had seen the Christ, seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. I need an eyewitness of his life and ministry because that's how it's going to qualify you to tell direct evidence. This is an evidentialist through and through. So I just think that that was helpful for me. Now, that the problem of suffering is a problem, but to be honest, it's far more a problem under naturalism than it is under the, under theism. You remember that um, the geometry is different under theism than it is under atheism. When I say that your life, you know, as an atheist, I I had I thought I thought was a good life. I was not. I didn't become a Christian because I had a problem, or was trying to fix something, or wanted a better version. Mm. I I didn't have any problems. I had a great life, great marriage, great kids, great job. Um, but my view was that if you could do 90 clean years, not get sick, not die of cancer, die peacefully in your sleep at 92, like my grandfather did, that's a great life. That was the goal. Mm-hmm. If I'd have got cancer at 40 and suffered 10 years miserably and then died at 50, I'd have been pretty ticked off because my expectation was for a 92 clean. Mm-hmm. Life was a line segment. 
right? It starts with birth and runs through life. 92 years ends with death. But that's an atheist view of what life is. Mm -hmm. And evil is measured based on your expectations of how clean this should be. But if life is not a line segment, but a ray that goes past the second dot, that's what rays do. They start at one point, they extend to another point and continue in the same direction infinitely. If you know your geometry, right? So <laughs> under, under theism, life is not a line segment. It's a ray. Mm. And if it's a ray... What's interesting is if life is a ray instead of a line segment, this changes things. Here's why I say that. Um, you remember when you were a kid, maybe some of some people I talked to, they maybe had like a birth defect and then they had to have an operation in the first year. They corrected it and it was probably terrible. That first year they were in the hospital all the time, constantly being poked and prod and cut open and all kinds of terrible things were happening to them. But by the time they're three, they have no recollection of it. And it's because yeah. you measure your pain, you measure your your suffering in the context of your life. And yeah. you're right. If if life is a segment, then we have to measure all goodness in the terms of the 92 years or whatever we hope to get. But if life's a ray, every year on the other side of the second dot, a thousand years into that, that ray, your 90 years will seem like it's very small by compare. A million years on the other side of the second dot, your 90 years are now a millisecond. Yeah. And you could have the worst 90 years. But- the ray is where you'll experience no pain, no suffering under a Christian worldview. If you're united with God on the second side of the dot, of the second dot, then it's a completely different explanation for what suffer, what you suffer on this side. Look, there are times when, as a parent, I allow my kids to suffer something so that they'll make better choices later or something else good will happen later. And people will say, well, yeah, but you can't uh, – people suffer and then they die. Yeah, because God's not limited to your line segment. God is working within the ray, and he may be trying to achieve something with you well on the other side of the second dot. I was listening to Tim Keller, who's got pancreatic cancer. I love and, him. Yeah, he's great. And um, he's, you know, he, they asked him, well, what are you learning now that you've got this diagnosis? And he said, well, a couple of things. Um, I'm learning, number one, um, that I need to be more efficient with my time. He is not, he said yes to everything before, and now he knows he can't say yes to everything. He also said, I'm learning that this is an issue of discipleship. In other words, that I'm not ready right now to do everything that God's going to have for me after I die. Mm. I need to be a different kind of person before I die. I need oh. to learn everything I can learn because he sees it as a ray. Mm. That's the whole point. So yes, I do see the problem of evil, but it's amplified under atheism. It's yeah. explained under Christianity. Yeah. So for somebody who, and I really appreciate everything you've shared so far. I know we're running short on some time and I want to ask a couple follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, for somebody who's really struggling with the idea of the resurrection, you briefly went through, you know, obviously there's a lot of objections. They don't really, I mean, once you look into them, it's really hard to, to go with those. You said there was a problem from the Christian perspective. Tell me about that one obstacle because I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, and that was the hardest one for me to jump. So I often will show it in terms of a path that's split. And in order to get to this decision that the resurrection occurred, um, I had to jump an obstacle that I, that I just, there's no way I could have jumped it. 
Uh, in order to, to to accept, though I accepted the other path, the other path in the split was that the resurrection didn't occur. The problem with that path is that it has many obstacles in the path, because if you test out the theory, did he lie? Well, I can, I'm not going to have time here today, but I, I've written a chapter about this. I don't think they lied for a, very, for a number of good reasons. Um, did, did they imagine it? And by the way, uh, even people like uh, Bart Ehrman, who's a pretty committed skeptic, he probably mm-hmm. could say he's agnostic, but he's really a skeptic. He's looked at those five explanations that have been historically offered by atheists for the uh, resurrection, and he rejects them also. And he's actually created a sixth explanation. And he had to change a fundamental view he held for years in order to create the sixth explanation. And why is he creating a sixth explanation? These explanations don't work. It's not just my saying they don't work. They clearly don't work because atheists keep on creating new ones because they know they don't work. (laughs) Now, here's the problem with the Christian explanation. It requires... A resurrection. That was the roadblock that was standing between me and that destination. Yeah. But keep in mind, I didn't put the other roadblocks. I mean, the, the lying theory, the, the theory of hallucination, all those theories don't work. I didn't, I have, I'm not the reason why they don't work. It turns out the other obstacle that, it, that my, my bias toward naturalism, I did put in the path. That's my bias mm-hmm. toward nat. I could easily take it down. And if I do, then all of the evidence is best explained by the fact that it just happened. Mm-hmm. But I put that obstacle up, the obstacle with my own barrier to naturalism. Now, if we're really honest, there are good reasons to abandon. Even atheists now are writing books about how there's probably something else they're not seeing that is out, you know, minding cosmos. There's a couple of good books out there right now that are, are they'll talk about this. And the point I'm trying to make is, is that I, I think you've got good reason to abandon your naturalism, even if you're just looking at DNA studies and how DNA is impacted in biology. If you can think you can you can get DNA with just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, good luck. <laughs> that's, not, that's not my burden. That burden's on you. Yeah. I know I can get DNA. I know I can get information, the information in DNA. I can get that from a, from a writer, from a mind, from an intelligent source, because all information, historically, we've never seen an example ever in the history of history in which information came from anything other than intelligence. So I know I can get it from intelligence, but if you're suggesting there's no intelligence crafting the universe, you got to get DNA some other way. That's not my burden. Yeah. But that's the problem with naturalism. So we already know there's something out there. What if the something actually entered into its creation? That would explain what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I get it. You need more evidence. Well, then why don't we need more evidence for our naturalism? I mean, if we're going to say that we have to hold a, a, a position of neutrality, no one holds a position of neutrality. Everyone stands on some basis, but you don't have good reason to stand there. If if you're thinking there's, you think you have complete evidence? No one's got complete evidence for any worldview. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the Christian worldview explains not just how we got here and what happened in the first century, it explains the longing of your heart right now. It explains why you've already chosen something that you're willing to give your life to because we've been separated from the one who gave us life. Mm. And we're constantly seeking that that object of greatest value that we can put our life on. Why do we do that? We also are seeking for our identity. We, we, we love community. We, we well, because you were created in the image of a triune God who by very nature is community. I mean, so much of what you're experiencing every day is inescapable. 
And yeah. you can try to explain it through all the natural studies that sociologists are still currently investigating. You'll discover all the things that the Christian authors have been writing about for 2,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Jim. I mean, you're full of information. <laughs> and I'm I'm just so grateful that you're here. I want to go back to your story. So you're looking into all of this. You start thinking, wow, this actually happened. Um, you have a good life. You're in your 30s. You have a good career, right? You were in your 30s yep. when all of this happened. Yeah. Um, you didn't. When I talk to a lot of people, they'll say, well, I recognized my need. That's how I came to Christ. How did you go from examining all this evidence to embracing the gospel of, wow, I'm a sinner and I actually need this Jesus? Well, because scripture says a lot about Jesus and you should question it and you should examine it and you should test it. But once I did that and I realized it was telling me something true about Jesus, I recognized the fact that it's also telling me a bunch of stuff about me, stuff that I would never have accepted as true. But if it's true about one side of this coin, it's probably true about the other two. And as I read through the letters, um, I realized that, yeah, you know, they really are described. I mean, it, here's the biggest problem with the Christian worldview, it seems to me, and why it, the, the stumbling block for centuries and even more so now, is that the first move is not just intellectual, um, you know, um, assent. It's, it's an act of submission. Right. Because you have to surrender who you think you really are. That it's that it's not all about you. Almost anyone who will say, you know, eighty-six percent of the, of the world believes there's some kind of higher power. But if you ask them to sketch out what that higher power looks like, I suspect most of them would end up describing something that's kind of like them, but with more power, <laughs> because we always want to shape. But this thing that is so difficult to embrace is that Scripture describes God as nothing like us, and and that we would have to start to step toward Him by surrendering something. But just let me say this to you. Everyone who's listening to us right now is already a slave to something. A slave to something we've voluntarily given our life to. We are by nature idol makers. We are by nature worshipers. We just pick what we're going to worship. And I guarantee you, it's something that has to do with sex, money, or power. That's what all there is to worship. And we find something. It's in relationships, and it's in those things that have to do with sex and relationships, or it's in power and celebrity and fame and how we look online, or it's in money and possessions and materialism. We find ways to craft our idols. Everyone does this. You're already a slave to something. And guess what? I guarantee if you're a slave to something other than your creator, that slave that you're a slave to, you voluntarily put boundaries on your life. The limits of whatever that slave activity involves. This is why when Jesus says, yeah, I'm not asking you to, I'm asking you that you, once you've given yourself to God, the destructive things that all that idol, um, idol worship does are, are now no longer a case. You're, you're, you've, you're going to be a slave to the, your creator. This is not a limiting. This is a, this is freedom, freedom from the things that, that right now control you. And I think sometimes it, and look, I, I can tell you, if you, if you would have had this conversation with me in my twenties, I would have said, well, you're an idiot. I'm, nothing controls me. I think what happens is it takes some period of years before you realize, wow, I could have made so many different choices, but I, at the time didn't think that would have value and I didn't get it. And, and that's part of the problem, I think, is that some of this is just the wisdom that comes with stubbing your toe enough times that you get to recognize in advance what will stub your toe.
Yeah. So I think a lot of this is hard to hear when you're super young because, you know, you haven't lived it yet, but yeah. I guarantee you, you're already a slave to something. It's just a matter of what it is you are going to give your life to. Right. Well, real quick, and then I'll ask the final question here. So I got two more for you. Um, maybe three, if I can throw them in here. Uh, you know, you have been very successful as a homicide detective. We mentioned your appearances on Dateline. You've also, I mean, you've done some really amazing things. Um, but then you became a Christian and you started talking about Jesus uh, publicly, not just yeah. staying quiet and, you know, minding your own business, right? right. Uh, you started telling people, and I know some of your former colleagues probably think you're crazy. In fact, I think I've oh, heard yeah. you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. How you changed so much. Um, why do you do it? Why Why have you done it, Jim? Well, I think that I, I don't see this as when you start, you become, you get saved in your mid-30s and then you don't start writing your books until you're in your 50s. This is not about a career change. This is not a career for me. I'm a, I'm a homicide. I have a pension. I live on my pension. This is just the stuff that you do as a spiritual discipline. You you pray, you serve, you preach, you tell share the word with people, you share, you evangelize. This is really all we're doing. So I want to get up every day and do something in one of these spiritual disciplines that is part of what it is for me to live my life as a Christian. And part of that is to explain it to others. You know, I see people already, by the way, that's another thing you're already doing because I guarantee you, whatever, whoever's listening to this is geeked out about something that occupies their conversations with their friends. I'm a huge sports fan. So we're in the football playoffs right now, you know, and by the time we air this, it will be in another playoff season from some other sport that I'll be completely obsessed about. <laughs> and so, I mean, if you ask me to make a case for some of those things, I'm, I can make a case for those things too. We always talk about the things we are obsessed with. Mm -hmm. So and you're already doing that. And if it's relationships or it's whatever you're watching on Netflix, whatever it is, you're talking, you're sharing it with somebody. For me, this is just the natural consequence of like, I discovered this and I'm like, wow, this is mind blowing. Remember C.S. Lewis said it right. If it's not true, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of critical importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's either mm -hmm. of no importance or of critical importance. And once I realized it was of critical importance, I'm, what else are you going to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. If you could speak directly to Luca right now and, uh, you know, she's listening to this episode, obviously you've challenged her in many ways indirectly. What would you say to her? Well, be patient. I mean, but, but keep looking. I mean, a lot of this is, is, um, I, I'm not anxious about, and I'm not anxious to try to, you, you don't, you cannot push someone toward this kind of truth. You have to draw them toward it. Because this is a matter of of, of, of stepping and but but at the same time, just be honest about the fact that you've already done that with something, with some worldview, you've already voluntarily stepped toward it. And I'd wish I could I could get in the head of my younger self at 20, because I would have spared myself some of the stuff that I've learned since then. But as you get older, you'll realize that this transcendent view. Um, has is not it's it, the reason why we flourish best and every study will show you this people who even live longer who are afraid of dying who see their lives in a continuum are people who believe that there is a persistent self that exists beyond the grave in every way this is not just a device to make you flourish we flourish because we were created by a god that ha understands we have a persistent self. You won't yeah. die when you think you're dying. Yeah. So I just think that if I could talk to my younger self, I'd say, hey, just be open to it. 
And also examine what you think are your benign default positions, because we don't have any benign default positions. Mm. We are standing on something we think is true. Yet I'll bet you if you really examined it and you could give an evidential reasoning for why you think that's true, you'd find that it's not even as well reasoned as a theistic view. Hmm. So just be honest about that. Wow. Final question. I always ask every guest this. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast, Jim, is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Real is an acronym for those things. Of those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus, restoration, eternity, authenticity, or love, which one stands out, stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? So I'm going to give you the, 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 I mean, I'm not an emotional kind of person. Yeah, I know. I guess. So. <laughs> can you see that already? Um, <laughs> but I do work a lot with people who I've been involved, been involved in trauma. And a lot of the work I do right now is with couples in marriage counseling who have experienced some kind of trauma, either a shooting, something that has changed their life forever. And they are suffering PTSD or suffering some form of tra traumatic decline. And so here's what I've noticed, and you've probably seen this too, is that if we are going along in our life and we suffer a trauma, we kind of get knocked to our knees. Mm -hmm. And if we stay there, then we're disabled. And sometimes we'll call that PTSD. And sometimes the goal of people like us who come in and say, let me help you with that, is to kind of get you to get you back to where you were so you can live your life. And we call that resiliency. But it turns out that our goal really is to do better than that. So what if you could experience a trauma? But then when you rebound, you actually do better than you did before mm -hmm. you started. What if you could actually thrive and flourish post-trauma? Well, the people who do that best are people who find a way to do what sociologists call meaning-making. How do we make sense of our suffering? How do we see what goal, what role this might have? Well, I can tell you of all the worldviews that will help you make meaning of suffering, none does it better in Christianity, in which God suffers on a cross for a purpose which was greater than himself. Yeah. And yeah. if if I can just tell you that if you want to be restored on the backside of a traumatic experience, um, again, it's not why you should embrace Christianity, because it has some practical utilitarian right. value, but it does because it's true. So, <laughs> so if in the end, you do experience this kind of trauma, and all of us are going to experience it, uh, getting it past it and flourishing is about making sense of your struggle, making sense. Why? You can't ask, why would God do this to me if you don't think there's a God to ask the question to? Yeah. But if you could ask the question, God has an answer. Yeah. And if you hear it, you will flourish. Wow. Well, Jay Warner Wallace, Jim, thank you so much for being here today. I just have loved this conversation. I have so many follow-up questions. I hope you come back on at some point. I'll be happy it's to just do been it. a delight. Um, until thanks, next time. Th thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. 
I know not everyone has experienced that. But if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.